Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Cat Thinkcast. I'm so delighted that you're joining me today because we've got a really special show. Um, today, I think that we need to talk about millenarian, non-Trinitarian, restorationist Christian sects, specifically the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. Before you uh, turn off... <laughs> what I'm talking about is the Shakers. So if you aren't that familiar, or if you are, either way, I think that it's an interesting thing from a, an artistic and a woodworking perspective to dip our toes a little bit into this particular group of people, because hot dog, they have had a huge influence on, gosh, my uh, inclination is to say, oh yeah, they've had a huge influence on furniture, but they've had a huge influence on architecture and making of pretty much everything that came after them from that perspective, um, technological innovation. And these are people who were incredibly skilled and oddly specific, I guess, is the term that I'm going to use. So there's no way that I can cover everything that was this particular group of people in one little podcast. But I've got a couple of resources that I've really enjoyed reading in the process of looking into this topic. I will definitely include links to to them in the description for the podcast. But the first is The American Shakers and Their Furniture by John G. Shea, which includes measured drawings of museum classics, which is super cool. It's not necessarily intended to be uh, a a how-to book. The designs aren't specifically in there for you to create um, and copy the, the shaker pieces, but um, they are a pretty good guideline if that's what you're interested in. So if you're looking for a little bit of a cookbook, for that sort of thing. Um, the other is Shaker, Life, Work and Art by June Sprig and David Larkin. And that's another fabulous book that has so much information in it about um, the the people themselves, their lifestyle and, and their history and where they came from. But yeah, so I guess just to kick things off, we're going to go with a little bit of background of what it is that I'm talking about. Um, the Shakers... Obviously, from the uh, the whole stream of information that I put out there at the top, they had a far more elaborate name than what they ended up with, which is say they called themselves the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing, but they got the name Shakers from their kind of religious stances and their the way that they behaved in um, in church, which um, is to say they literally would shake and. Uh, jerk around and kind of have these kind of ecstatic dances that was part of their worship. It seems like that's a, a name that was given to them by uh, outsiders, but I, I think that they ended up kind of taking it on and, and just rolling with that because the Shakers themselves have um, labeled all of their products 
sort of after a certain point as being shaker made so they definitely um took on that title and and rolled with it so we're talking about uh, a religious group a movement that was like this is they were institutionalized in the late 1700s so like 1780s was kind of the official beginning of this belief system and then we're here you know not that far in the future from a religious perspective and I believe the last information that I got was that there's two living shakers left on the planet so um, they had like a a short fast burn it was like a group that their their basic tenants were uh, practicing communal living so they shared everything all of the work that they did and all of the funds that came into their communities was used to support the community as a whole so people didn't have their own money within the group um, but they all took care of one another and they all worked towards those common goals they practiced celibacy so um, the shakers did not believe in sex have my own little theories about how things like this go but if you're not having sex I think that leaves a lot of room for you to focus your energies on uh, producing beautiful artwork and being uh, really creative with your art and with your uh, technology and your inventions and um, yeah certainly the evidence is there that these people were putting any energy that they had uh, sexual or otherwise into work into um, invention and the results were were fabulous passivism was another like deal with the with the shakers they were um, non-believers in violence um, to the point that um, during the American Civil War the shakers cared for soldiers from both sides and they were actually given exemption from military service um, because they they believed that it was unacceptable to kill or harm others even during a war and so they were America's first conscientious objectors equality of the sexes I found this fascinating the shakers had a, a really very progressive perspective on the from that perspective which is that uh, men and women were equal um, they were treated fairly and and with respect they did sort of divide work into men's work and women's work but that seemed to be just from uh, probably like habits of the day and and practical purposes rather than um, a sense that you know it wasn't a woman's place to be in the woodshop or, or a man's place to they had a lot of division between the sexes obviously because of the the celibacy rule they had a lot of uh, structures social structures in place to keep the the ladies and the guys separate from one another to um not have any bumps in the road on that front but um yeah the the original matriarch of the entire um society miss Anne lee or should i say like eldress Anne lee was um the one who kind of started it all and they believed that she was the second coming of of christ so really very interesting to see a society that from i think i think at a quick glance i can only speak for myself but i've had a tendency to sort of 
chalk the the shakers into a category with um, the Amish and the Mennonites and have kind of a but we make assumptions about what a group is when we don't take the time to kind of actually lean in and see what what their actual beliefs are and what their actual rules are. And so I think that my really broad strokes perspective, not knowing anything about these people, was that they were very into austerity. And um, I think my assumption would have been that they were very patriarchal. And that's not the case. So why am I talking about these people on my, you know, woodworking and furniture and art inclined podcast? Because hot dog, if you don't really um, have an image of shaker work in your mind, then uh, give it a quick Google. I assure you that you have been exposed to this material before and, um, you just might not have had the the correct terms for it or you might not have just known where what category it fell under but yeah it was sort of a an era in history where a lot of other folks were were looking at making things very decorative and kind of heavy-handed with <laughs> yeah gilded and adding as many flourishes as possible to furniture and to art in general and um, these are folks who were really prioritizing simplicity, functionality. What was really important to the Shaker aesthetic was that it worked and that it was clean. There was a really strong motivation to make things that were easy to clean because they had this uh, tenant that cleanliness was, uh, well, next to godliness, so to say. Um, so yeah, one of, one of the trademarks of a shaker home that you would see come up often is the peg rail. So sort of at the two thirds height in, in the room, you have this wooden rail that goes the whole way around a room and has all of these, um, big pegs on it. And that allows everything, I mean, chairs, everything to be picked up off of the floor and hung on the wall from one perspective you're like my god why am i why would i want to hang my chairs on the wall but if you want things to be able to be swept and kept very very clean then um that's a really good way to go these are folks that were incredibly inventive um they uh, invented the flat broom. <laughs> so what we think of as like just the way that a broom is prior to the shakers, uh, brooms were all kind of a round bundle of straw and they, uh, they perfected the broom. They started the entire garden seed industry. So they were great farmers and skillful blacksmiths and they were tanners and weavers and did basketry and stonework and fabrication and metalwork and you know like anything that you can think of these people were really perfecting all of these arts so with the furniture um i mean i'm not going to list every piece of of furniture that was interesting that came out of a shaker design but there's a few things that they were particularly popular for chairs is a big one 
at the moment in history that we're talking about, like through the 1800s, most people's chairs were pretty heavy and pretty thick, pretty not super comfy. <laughs> uh, just to put like a fine point on it. But for the Shakers, they one of the things that as I was sort of commenting on my own preconceived notions about what these folks were like, I kind of had that impression of austerity of like discomfort and suffering in in day to day life. But it's not the case, you know, the Shakers didn't have any sort of prohibition on comfort. And so that meant that they really um, pushed the development of rocking chairs and chairs in general really far because they didn't want to sit on a crappy chair that felt bad. (laughs) And so um, they started producing these chairs that were very light, lightweight and um, very strong compared to a lot of what was going on at that at that point in time. They began sell- producing and selling their chairs in, I think, about 1850. One of the fellows, Elder Robert Wagon, um, they kind of formally organized and they were advertising under his name, R.M. Wagon and Company, and manned by Shaker craftsmen. So the wagon company was doing like wholesale chair orders and uh, rocking chair orders for mail order houses and department stores and the like. And they actually were given a prize. What was it? They exhibited at the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition in 1876. They were given a medal and a diploma for their strength, sprightliness, and modest beauty. Isn't that nice? Oh, their advertisement uh, or in their catalog, they said, our chairs offer the advantages of durability, simplicity, and lightness. And then they said, our largest chairs do not weigh over 10 pounds and the smallest weigh less than five pounds. And yet the largest person can feel safe in sitting down without fear of going through them. So it's funny when you think about chairs in that context, you imagine taking a 10 pound object and expecting it to hold without threat of giving way under, you know, what, like 200 pounds of person or more. And that's like, that's a feat of engineering. If you, if you think about it for a moment, like you have to kind of give credit to what, what a well-designed chair can do. So um, these folks definitely were were pushing for the advancement of uh, chair technology. They also um, were the ones that created the little boots for the the legs of the chair that allow it to lean back against the wall, like prevent it from messing up your floor, etc. So yeah, shaker chairs, shaker chairs, fancy business. Um, what else? I mean, there's so many things that, that these folks were quite famous for. Another one that kind of comes immediately to my mind, or that I think of as like, sort of a standout piece is the, the boxes, the round oval shaker, shaker boxes. And they're these beautifully made pieces, and they just made them in, in all different sizes. They were so fabulous at 
Um, <laughs> and this sounds like almost a silly thing to say, but like gradation of size. When you look at um, in the furniture or in like the built-in furniture, they have these great built-in furniture you're going to hear me rustle around here for a minute because there was a good um, quote in one of my books that I liked. They they did a lot of built-in furniture, a lot of like drawers and doors and, you know, whole walls that were set up as storage. Again, if you think of a group that um, have really prioritized cleanliness and really want things to be able to be kept in a, a very orderly way, then you want lots of storage and well-ordered storage. And you want it to be either up off of the floor or like I described with the pegboards or or rather the peg rail um, or to be set into the walls so that you can't collect dust underneath it at all. And uh, this is um, a description from a building's architect and the way they describe it in the book was that you know he couldn't quite resist bragging a little bit he said scarcely a knot can be seen in all the work except for the floors and they are yellow pine and very good there are 100 large doors including outside and closet doors 245 cupboard doors 369 drawers these we placed in the corners of the rooms and by the sides of the chimneys, and I think we may say it is finished from the top to the bottom, handsomely stained inside with a bright orange colour. 369 drawers. Can you imagine? We're really into a storage space these days in our in our modern world, but I don't know. I don't think that I have anything that begins to broach 369 drawers to store things in in my reality when you look at the pictures of it it it's exactly that it's just these uh banks of doors and drawers and they've got it very well organized and the reason i'm on this tangent is because um they do a great job with beginning with a large drawer at the bottom and then slowly doing a gradation where it gets um, smaller and smaller sized drawers as you go up and that seems like kind of a common sense thing in a way like I can hear somebody sort of rolling their eyes and saying well yeah that's how you do it but is it is it just obvious that you would do that I think that um, from a design perspective you have to do that consciously and you have to have thought of it and um there's something about that that draws your eye up through the through the piece and you see it in um, freestanding wardrobes and dressers and things like this and you also see it in these built-in pieces and and it's really lovely and it's subtle you know um, and a similar thing you see in their chairs where they go um, sort of in the opposite direction where you've got the slats that are on the backs of the rocking chairs a lot of these rocking chairs have like kind of slat back or like rail ladder ladder back um and they'll have like a flat line at the bottom of the slat but the top side of it will be arched and you'll see that when you actually pay attention to it the the slat on the bottom 
has a much more subtle arch and then the one above it has a slightly more archy arch and then the one above that has an even higher arch and the one above that and it's not so much that you look at it and you're like oh yes there's there's a shift that's happening from the bottom to the top but there's something about it that's very pleasing to our senses and they were paying attention to this something that I found when I was when I was reading through um, this material and they're talking about kind of the communal nature and how um, of the way that the Shakers lived and how in spite of not having a monetary incentive these people were still producing incredible work that was uh, really renowned as being the highest quality and it was very sought after and um, it makes perfect sense to me from an artistic perspective it means that you don't have to worry about the specific thing that you're doing um, you don't have to be stressed about getting it out the door because of money, etc., etc. The money isn't the point. The point is that you're trying to make the greatest thing that you can. You're trying to make it the most perfect that you can. And the act of making it is a meditation, is uh, an act of reverence for God, for someone who you know, believes in God and, and wants to show reverence, that's pretty good motivation to do a really nice job. <laughs> and um, and I it, it doesn't surprise me that taking kind of the monetary side of it out of the equation doesn't make for, you know, lazy shakers. It makes for, <laughs> or like shoddy shakers, it makes for really excellent shakers because they're not caught up in stressing about the business side of it um obviously they were excellent businessmen business people um but it was you know some of the members who were good at that who were taking care of that and then the people who were doing the other thing were doing that thing and and everybody had their uh their area of expertise and everybody was sharing in the benefit of all of it together so it makes perfect sense to me. Um, there was some other things that I found interesting. What else do I have in my little notes here? Um, that Wood was a favorite. I, oh my goodness, Wood was a favorite me, uh, medium. So they they were buying up, starting out in England. They, you know, it's quite funny because when you think about, um, <laughs> I couldn't help in my mind but kind of draw parallels to the like kind of weird awkward kid at school who is quirky but super nice like not harming anybody not hurting anything in fact kind of excelling at everything that they do um and getting thrown in the locker or the dumpster um just because they're they're just too weird for the rest of the folks around them and I feel like that's like a very simplified and perhaps trite um, comparison of what I was reading regarding the Shakers starting out in England and the discrimination that they faced and the the beatings that these people were receiving I think that especially in the early days um, 
this sounds very, very funny, but I think that the celibacy was the weird part for outsiders to get their head around. And it meant that when they converted people to come join them, those people were committing to never getting married, never having children. And these are things that are very um, ingrained culturally and that's it's quite the big thing to give up and so for um people in in outside communities they were kind of quote unquote like you've stolen our kids and now our kids aren't going to have kids and um i think that it felt very cultish and this sort of thing and you're all dancing in circles and shaking and thrashing and talking about god you know i mean i kind of feel like everybody was doing their own version (laughs) of that um but yes so they it didn't go over well in england is is the point and so they decided to move to america where they could pursue um having religious freedom and they arrived in america and guess what yeah because um because their faith made it that they weren't able to swear an oath of allegiance it meant that they were persecuted in the u.s as well like to the degree that they were um, imprisoned on six-month terms they again just suffered terrible beatings and um and violence at the hands of people who clearly didn't understand what it was that that they were all about. So um, they were, you know, definitely taking, taking, what's the expression? You Turning the other cheek. Clearly, I was not raised in a uh, very religious home, so I don't have a lot of uh, well-ingrained vocabulary for it. But yeah, these folks were, they were having a a really tough go of it. And one of the, the early things that they were getting under their feet was that they were, they were showing up in a new place and they just start working the land and they started, um, developing water turbines to operate sawmills so they were very inventive with all of that they were very skillful at business um and their communities in the early to mid 19th century they were pretty independently wealthy you know it was it's very interesting because you're talking about a faith that didn't really believe or approve of worldly wealth so they they used any of the money that was coming to them to uh, better their communities and then they used the spillover to help take care of their less uh, well-off neighbors these are folks that were incredibly skillful business people and they were working very hard but it was all for the purpose of you know the the motto of um, put your hands to work and your heart to god came from Anne lee and they really lived by that. They were working very hard. Their dedication was about um, bettering technology and advancing everything forward, all in the name of doing it for God, not for money on this planet. So, you know, once they had the money in hand, they were like, well, you know, we're going to continue investing in our tools. They absolutely believed in whatever was uh, most technologically advantageous. Um, 
the first, I thought that this was fabulous, that the first circular saw blade was invented in 1810 by Sister Tabitha Babbitt. So um, even our first circular saw blade came from the Shakers. So how am I going to wrap this up? I realize that this has been a little bit of a uh, all over the place tangential little jaunt down the, the rabbit hole of looking at something that is a very broad topic. And all I can say is I hope that this just serves as a little bit of an appetizer and that it um, gets you, piques your interest enough that you want to look into it yourself. Because um, just with the two books that I've read and the bit of reading online, I've found this to be really fascinating and um, and so interesting to see how innovative and open-minded and and skillful this particular group of people were um I guess for me my my next step coming out of this is what do I want to uh take away or like apply to my own practices and I think that um I think that I would love to have a go at making some of the shaker wooden boxes if you aren't familiar with the oval boxes just bust out your google there and do shaker oval wooden box and you're gonna find them they're very beautiful they're very uh practical as everything that the shakers did was um and they have this great joinery that they called swallow tails and i mean joinery it's just a way of cutting the uh the outside seam on these boxes so that they're less susceptible to swelling and shrinking and um it's it's also very pretty it's very aesthetically pleasing so um i think that that's like my inspiration project that i'm going to take away from having a look into this little world and I've got a couple things between here and there but it's definitely going to be on my docket so keep an eye out I will keep you guys posted as I um, progress through my projects right now I'm still on my workbench which now has both a tail vise and a face vise, which is pretty exciting for me. Um, if you want to have a look at the projects that I'm completing as they come along, check out Cat Fink Woodworking on YouTube. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast or the YouTube videos as they come out or, you know, any of this artistic process that I'm uh, getting together, then um, check out my page on Patreon. It's just under my name, Kat Fink, K-A-T-F-I-N-C-K. And finally, a huge thank you to the patrons that I already have. And a huge thank you to you folks for listening. Um, I really appreciate the support. And I hope that you come around next time. Please get back to me with any questions or comments or ideas. And we'll, uh, we'll keep doing these little, I won't call it a deep dive. We'll keep doing these little shallow dives down <laughs> fascinating trails and see what we find. So until next time, see you later. Bye.